Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. is out. Look at, look at this. Freddy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Welcome. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And, of course, uh, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everybody listening. And hopefully everybody enjoyed the holiday week. But a ton of things to get into in regards to Major League Baseball. I'm going to talk about some stuff like I normally do. We'll break down Bases Empty Blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. Of course, a reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We'll keep the conversation interactive. And hopefully you guys have enjoyed the you know the podcast over the last several years. But you know one of the things that I've really taken seriously throughout this whole thing is my interaction with the players. And uh, you know you look at it from a baseball fan's perspective, and it, it's different when you look at it from you know actually getting a chance to know people and talk to people and kind of make them and kind of bring them into your own realm of. Maybe not necessarily family, but you know, it becomes a little bit of a click. It becomes a little bit of an uh, acquaintanceship when you get to meet certain people. And you know, all the people that I've, I've had on my show, several of them I've kept close contact with, and you know, I really do follow them and kind of look at them in a different perspective than I did before. And that's why, you know, when something happens like it, it did this week, it kind of hits me a little more than it may hit the average baseball fan. And of course, I'm talking about um, the fortunate passing of former major league catcher ed herman and ed hoggy herman of course played for the chicago white Sox throughout the better part of the 1970s was a very good catcher behind the plate and he was a guy that you know i had a chance i was lucky enough to speak with over the summer very briefly about you know potentially doing an interview for my show and uh, of course ed you know over the course of the summer uh, ended up getting a, a bad form of prostate cancer and you know was pretty much bedridden within the last you know month or two of his life and unfortunately he passed away this past week at the age of 67 and you know here's a guy that was 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 good at what he did he was a very good catcher and you know i had set myself up with the hopes of having the opportunity to interview him and you know the unfortunate thing was as once you know he per, he digressed in regards to his condition and stuff i i kind of took you know to grips and came to grips with the fact that I probably wasn't going to be able to do the interview. And, you know, I was hoping to see that, you know, he was able to battle through everything that was going on. And we know he gave it a tough fight. And, you know, the unfortunate thing when you're dealing with something like cancer, sometimes it just becomes more powerful than the body. 
And here was a man that, you know, really up through the last couple of weeks through, through his wife actually gave me the, you know, the, the, the opportunity to just stay in touch and, you know, continue to wish him the best. And I said this all along. I mean, I have, uh, you know, guests on my show. I interact with a lot of players and, you know, I consider that, you know, something that I'm very, very grateful to have the opportunity to do. But it also hits me something like a little on the emotional sense because I do feel that this is something that I'm able to kind of, you know, allow these people into my life in a certain way. And it's not that I'm going out, hanging out, you know, having beers with them. I'm not part of a big clique, you know, anything special like that. But you know, we talked about it last year when, you know, Justin Miller unfortunately passed away. You know, he was a guest on my show, and I remember the interaction we had. And, you know, it, it's kind of like somebody you know. It's not just a baseball player. It's not just a random person that you read the obituaries every day. It's something, somebody, and I said it all along, every one of these players have an impact on my life, and I'm able to look at it in a certain direction. And, you know, Ed Herman, I got a chance to write about him. And, you know, really what I did is within my blog, and of course, check that out, Bases Empty Blog, johnpielli.com, mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli, the whole thing. But was kind of set myself up as if I was interviewing him. And, you know, with the thoughts that maybe he, you know, his condition would have bettered and I would have had a chance to speak with him again. You know, I kind of went through a couple of the things that I would have loved to have the opportunity to talk to him about. Some things you may not know about Ed Herman. Ed Herman's grandfather, Marty, actually played for the Brooklyn Robins as a pitcher, a left-hand pitcher in 1918. So obviously I would have wanted to know really, you know, what his relationship was with his grandfather, if he got to really know him that much, and if he did, if that was one of his influences in Major League Baseball. But if you go back to his career, this is a guy that was uh, signed before the draft ended up getting itself into place in 1964 by the Milwaukee Braves. And then that following year, the late part of the year, he was drafted from the Braves by the Chicago White Station and ends up making his major league debut in the 1967 season. He ends up spending 1968 in the minors. He comes back in 69 and becomes essentially the starting catcher for the Chicago White Sox from 69 to 74. But what stands out is he had some very good offensive numbers his first couple years. 69, he was very good. 70, he was very good. A left-hand hitting catcher, obviously a right-hand thrower since he was behind the plate. And we talked about before, not too many left-handed catchers have really existed in Major League Baseball history and had any success. But here's a guy obviously threw right-handed. But here's a guy that really made his name as a defensive catcher. And not only that, he caught the knuckleball probably better than any catcher that has ever played this game. And we talked about some other guys that could possibly be up there. And, you know, uh, keep, keep tweeting at me, at John underscore Pielli, anybody you think of that was a dominant knuckleball catcher. But here's a guy that caught Wilbur Wood, of course, during Wilbur Wood's best years. Remember, Wilbur Wood was a reliever before he came to the White Sox, came to the White Sox and made 49 starts, uh, and then 48 starts respectively, just about all of them caught by Ed Herman. And Ed Herman obviously was known for that big catching mitt and just the ability to frame, frame a knuckleball and be able to handle it into the glove. I thought he did that better than any catcher that I've ever seen or heard about. And Hoyt Wilhelm was there. Of course, uh, Eddie Fisher was there. So there were other knuckleball pitchers. And I can't really imagine or remember too many other catchers that had that much success as a defensive catcher catching the knuckleball predominantly over a, a several-year span. But here's a guy that could hit a little bit, was very good for the White Sox, of course, ended up being traded to the New York Yankees where he, he backed up Thurman Munson for a little while, um, ended up finishing his career in Montreal as Gary Carter's backup. But, you know, as the guy went on, he was known as a very, very, very good veteran presence, a very good 
catcher behind the plate and had a very decent major league career and you know a guy that you know really from you know from a, a historical standpoint the 49 starts by Wilbur Wood were it was obviously the most starts by any pitcher since you know the uh, dead ball era but you know the fact that Wilbur Wood was able to go out there every you know on three days rest sometimes on two days rest and Ed Herman, you know, was behind the plate and caught all his starts. That was the most starts that a catcher had caught a knuckleball pitcher in one season. And, you know, obviously, you know, something that, you know, takes two to tango. Wilbur Wood obviously felt comfortable throwing to Ed Herman. And Ed Herman really felt comfortable catching a Wilbur Wood or a Hoyt Wilhelm. And, you know, you look at, you know, of course, the knuckleball pitcher nowadays is obsolete. You know, you got R.A. Dickey, but you got very few other pitchers that want to learn the pitch. And it's obviously become a gimmick. I think you look at some pitchers, and even in R.A. Dickey's case, a guy that really needed to change up his makeup and he needed to kind of come up with something to be able to sustain himself a professional career and he obviously gained a knuckleball he perfected it and probably throws it better than really anybody since the days of uh you know phil necro or even uh, uh wilbur wood for that matter but of course after his playing career he was he was very uh, involved with helping and teaching other young people and you know, hosting clinics and always giving advice in regards to people and, you know, prospects and, uh, you know, really, really did a lot to make a lot of a lot of players better, you know, either on, the, you know, the minor league or the amateur level and eventually up into guys that became Major League Baseball players. And he did a phenomenal job, really, even up within the last year or so of his life was very active. You know, his website at Herman.com, you know, there's always people, you know, were able to get into it and involve themselves with him. So, you know, Ed Herman, unfortunately, a guy who I will never be able to interview on this show. And, you know, it's kind of sad because, you know, it was a guy that, you know, I, I really, you know, was able to know a lot about and was really lucky enough to be able to interact with him and speak with him and speak with his wife, you know, particularly towards, you know, the last couple of weeks of his life. But obviously, rest in peace. You know, Hoggy, a great, you know, very good player, a very good man. And it's unfortunate that he ends up passing at the age of 67. And he joins, you know, a minor list here on the Passball Show of a couple other players that I have had a chance to interact with but didn't get the opportunity to interview. Gene Freeze, who, of course, played with the Reds in the 1960s, was a guy that I was unable to do the interview with in time before his passing. And, of course, you know, a more tragic situation was what happened with Ryan Freel the former infielder, outfielder with the Reds, the Orioles, a couple other teams. Of course, he ended up committing suicide with the, the issues in his brain from the concussion syndrome and the whole thing. And he was a guy that had a little back and forth with, was planning over time to do an interview with him. And then, you know, unfortunately, you know, his, his life ended obviously abruptly, you know, with the, with the suicide involved with the, the concussion syndrome. And, of course, George Boomer Scott. You know, we all remember George Boomer Scott being a very good first baseman for years with the Boston Red Sox and the Milwaukee Brewers. And, of course, you know, he ended up just passing away this past year at the age of 69. So, you know, this, this is some of the things that I go through with because I think everybody looks at it or a lot of people look at it. Hey, John Pielli, you know, gets guests for a show every week, does interviews, sets the whole thing up. But, you know, I take it a little more personally and a little more emotionally in regards to setting things up and kind of the common bond that I have with the Major League Baseball player. And, you know, I can't thank anybody that's ever done my show enough. And, you know, I do share, you know, the some sort of camaraderie that's involved with it. And listen, I played the game, but obviously didn't play the game at the level that any of these guys ever had. So I don't have the kinship with them on that level. But I know the game. I've been part of the game as a historian. 
uh, you know, not to be arrogant, but I, I know the game better and, and as well as anybody that has ever involved themselves in it. And I think a lot of the players that I interview and speak with do appreciate that. And the dialogue is great. And like I said, dude, the feeling is mutual. I've inter- enjoyed every interview that I've done. And we're going to continue things going on with some other interviews that I got planned for today's show. But I did want to start off with that. You know, rest in peace, Ed Hoggy Herman. You know, a very nice man and a very good catcher for, you know, the better part of the 1970s, with mostly with the White Sox. Also played a little bit with the Yankees, the California Angels, the Houston Astros, and, of course, the Montreal Expos, where he finished playing his career with Gary Carter. So rest in peace, Hoggy. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to get into the program. We're going to get over some hot stove stuff. I do want to talk a little bit. Mets, Phillies, Yankees. And, of course, the program is always interactive. Tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And, you know, we, we always go back and forth like we do on a weekly basis during the airing of this program, which just remember, it could be heard 10 to 12 Saturday mornings, 5 to 7 Saturday evenings, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. on Sundays, and then a couple times overnight going Monday into Tuesday, Tuesday into Wednesday, etc. So just check out mtrmedia.com, mtrradio.com, the program and schedule, and figure out the next time the pass ball shows on. And like I've said, anytime I hear the tweet thing go off, you know, I, I, I wake up, even if I'm in asleep and kind of go over to tweet and then I'll end up, you know, going back and forth with all the people that have been nice enough to listen to the show. But we're going to take our first break, be back with a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HDTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week. Bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-price appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal. Served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. Listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. 
Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, happy holidays. Merry Christmas, the whole thing. Uh, my next interview I'm going to play is with a former Major League pitcher. Came out of the Phillies organization, pitched with the Miami Marlins, a couple other teams over the course of his career, and is attempting to come back. And hopefully we get to see him either in spring training and in eventually back in the big leagues. And his name is Brian Sanchez, a right-hand pitcher. Had a little bit of success with the Marlins. Uh, came up, like I said, through the Phillies organization. And has kind of redefined himself and become a good reliever and certainly a guy who would be worth it to bring in on a minor league type of deal and maybe fill out a spot in the front of the bullpen maybe being a guy who may be a long man kind of a short guy and eventually work himself into a major role like he had with the the Florida Marlins teams of the late 2000s, 2007, 2008, etc. But hopefully you guys enjoy this spot, former Major League pitcher Brian Sanchez. Good news, John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher for the Phillies, Nationals, and Marlins, Brian Sanchez. Brian, what's going on, man? Not too much. Enjoying all season. No, definitely, man. So now, you know, now, now, where where are you at now? You still looking to pitch at this point, or is this something that you know you're, uh, you know, you'd ideally like to get back, or are you content with kind of, uh, you know, being away now? Well, I'm, I'm kind of torn. I'm actually put the kids in what I'm going to do. Um, if, if there's a, you know, a good, you know, major league opportunity, I think I'd probably explore that. But if not, uh, I might look at uh, retiring right now. Uh, it's a tough decision, but I'm um, kind of just being patient, see what pans out, and then I'll, uh, when the time comes, I'll make my decision. Yeah, it's got to be a tough time because, you know, you realize there's, there's always a market for pitching and, you know, you, you know, you got 30 teams in Major League Baseball. I'm sure there's a handful of them that probably wouldn't mind, you know, seeing what you got left and maybe there's a spot in the bullpen. So, you know, from that perspective, I understand why you might want to get into it. And then, you know, the other side is, all right, well, when's enough enough? So, uh, yeah, and then, you know, definitely, uh, you know, I think one of the, the strengths is uh, I've pretty much pitched in every role, you know. So, uh, this past year, I was uh, uh, in AAA the whole year of the Royals, and I got to start for the first time in, in 10 years. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I uh, felt like I excelled at it. So, I've pretty much been in every role, and I think that, you know, that's definitely a plus for me. It's finally a, a job for being in the big leagues. But, you know, on the other hand, I also have, you know, I have three kids, you know, three young kids, so that also makes the decision, you know, a little more complicated and, you know, uh, you know, they're starting school and then that process of starting school, so you know, we won't get to, to spend the whole season together like we have in the past, you know, I believe we'll really start school if we decide to play again this year, so that's, that goes into the equation as well. Yeah, no question about it. And you mentioned, of course, being with the Royals and, uh, you know, p- pitching in the minors last year for them. That was also the team that drafted you, you know, second round of the 1999 draft. You know, tell us, take us back to then. You know, you're, you know, you're a pitcher, obviously, you know, looking looking to get, you know, get into things. You get drafted in the second round. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, what went into your decision and, you know, once you finally signed with the Royals. Yeah, it seems so long ago, it's hard to much up those memories, but uh, I remember just being really, really excited, really anxious about the draft to come, and uh, just being at my parents' house with, uh, with with my girlfriend and my wife now, but she was my girlfriend then, and you just kind of sit and wait, you know, you have, a, you have an idea about where you're going to get drafted, the scouts are telling you, and uh, you know, luckily, you know, I think I, think I was the third pick of the second round. I really didn't have to wait around that long. I, got, I remember getting a phone call from Kansas City, and it was actually, uh, 
Sanchez. Now, you know, uh, you know, with with the Royals, you know, you end up coming up. You get a chance to start, like you mentioned, you know, last year. But you know, you also, you know, were were drafted as a starting pitcher. You know, 2000 comes, you end up throwing a no hitter for uh, Wilmington of the uh, Carolina League. You know, tell us a little bit about that because that, that must have been a pretty exciting experience to be able to throw, throw a no hitter at a, you know at an early professional level. Yeah, that was my first full season, and I jumped to high A, you know, started season at high A, and actually I think I threw the, the no-hitter in, in May sometimes, so it was relatively early in my career. Obviously, that's one of the highlights of my career. It was exciting, an exciting time, and, and, you know, as the game went on, I didn't even realize I had it until, like, a seventh inning. I remember finishing the seventh inning, and I come sit on the bench in the same spot as and sitting, you know, in previous you anyway mentally, you know, as you went out to pitch the eighth and ninth inning? 
Yeah, I think it did. I mean, it's, it's part of the process of just coming up anyway. Each year, each battery you face, all the things you put in, you, you have to learn, you know, most importantly, you have to learn who you are as an individual, individual, and you learn how to coach yourself, but you also have to learn your mental routine to prepare your body for each outing. You know, I actually learned that when I became, um, when I became a reliever, that was, one of the main things I had to learn first, especially getting the big league, is just prepare your mind to pitch each night. So there has to be a routine. It can't be too complex. But it's got to be something that's going to trigger, trigger your mind and body into getting ready to go to work. And uh, because you just don't, and basically, I mean, you just don't strap on and expect to go out there and have success. You have this preparation. There's mental preparation on who you're going to face, certainly in the game. I like to, I remember watching the game. I like to watch again the first three innings, see what the hitters are doing, see their tendencies, and then you start your stretching routine, preparing to possibly warm up. But you know, in that situation, I just felt like that was a growing situation for me because of, because I was locked in the first seven innings and then realized what was going on. I had to teach myself to focus each pitch and to concentrate on that and just basically keep it keep it simple and not let outside outside factors come into play of my performance. Yeah, no, as you, as you end up moving forward through the Kansas City system, once again, John Pialli here with Brian Sanchez, you know, you end up uh, making the first transition into being a reliever for the first time. And, you know, I'm sure I'm sure prior to you being drafted, you were probably used just about exclusively as a starter. But, you know, I'm sure you had some, you know, some experience relieving. Was there anything major mechanically or within the pitches that you threw that you had to change from becoming, uh, you know, a, a, like a, a reliever? at a time and then eventually a full-time reliever? Yeah, I mean, there was, I, I got, I had an injury in college in my junior year where I, I was starting, obviously I started the whole time in college and my junior year, when the season started, I pulled my growing. So in the building process of coming back, I, I was closing. So I got the experience closing in college before I went back to starting when I was fully healthy uh, or built back up. So that was, those innings that I got to close in college helped me get a little bit of an idea. But obviously, when you're going into pro ball and you get to the daily level, there's a whole other learning curve and, and, and pressure situation in college. And I, I was pretty fortunate to learn from some pretty good ones. Um, I learned, uh, you know, when we were a key, two pitches is key. You have to obviously have to be okay to fastball no matter what level, especially in the big leagues. You have to have a good, a good secondary pitch. And uh, when I got straight over to the Philly, I actually learned the split. So I wasn't very good at pulling my change up. It just never came easy to me, but I was probably still going on my pitching coaches and, and picked it up really quickly. And at the same time, I became a reliever. And I got to be use those two pitches a lot. And with that split, was kind of became my change up slash strikeout pitch. And from that point, Able to sharpen up that split really helped me move up. But then as I got up there and I, and I, and I built this to the daily, I was able to see, you know, guys like Jamie Moyer was starting there, but in the bullpen was uh, Tom Gordon, Flash Gordon. And uh, I got to watch him, you know, every night prepare. And that really helped me mentally because it taught me each night. He had the same routine each night. And he was our closer. It didn't matter if we were up by six or down by six or nine or ten. He came out. And he did the same thing every night with the same preparation. And he talked to me a lot about it. And he, he used to tell me, he goes, you see all this stuff I'm doing? I'm not doing it. 
chance to work with a guy like Tom Gordon who made a similar transition. You know, he came up as a starter, a very, you know, highly touted starting pitcher with Kansas City. And, you know, the similarities are there, obviously, between, you know, being in Kansas City's organization and being a starter first. You know, I'm sure, you know, having a chance to work with a guy like that was very beneficial to you. Yeah, it was, I, I, I would definitely say it was a big key to me learning how to pitch a little bit myself. And uh, it was just the, 
you know, something that I started pitching well, got confident, and just ran with it, and I had a good, a good coaching staff helping me out that trusted me and had confidence in me too, and they just kept putting me out there. And each outing, I kept building confidence, and it just and, you know, realize and, and prove that I was able to pitch that level. Yeah, and I'm telling you, you probably agree with me on this. So once again, John Piali here with Major League Pitcher Brian Sanchez. Uh, you know, a couple of your keys was your ability as a reliever to be able to get both right-hand hitters and left-hand hitters out. Because, you know, you see the way that, you know, right-hand pitchers are set up to pretty much get right-handed batters out all, only. And you were able to do that, obviously, because of your, you know, your fastball. But the fourth ball kind of allows you to be able to be able to get left-hand hitters out, which probably saves, uh, let's say, a manager's trip to the mound to bring in a lefty to face a lefty batter. I 100% agree. Uh, the football had a lot to do with it. In fact, that was the reason I was able to face both hitters. And I can throw it to both. The, you know, obviously, mainly you're going to throw it to have more than you would for a righty. Uh, actually, I, mean, I gained so much confidence that I, I can throw it to anybody you can And then the National League is really key because you don't have to make another move when you know that you're going to have to make a move later with pitch hitters. And, and you know, matching up and then matching up against the other teams that's entered as well. So that's to me with a key the key asset to be in the national league reliever is being able to face those lefties along with the righties and can you say you can save a bullpen, you can save an arm that may a lefty that may have to come in and pitch it for the fourth lane in a row or something like that. You can give maybe him a day before you come back and take it down tomorrow or something like that. It just to me just gave you know it helps give a the manager your manager an option. And something else to work with. So the football is probably the main reason I was able to do that. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Brian, I wish you the best of luck, man. I hope to see you back in a big league soon, and uh, keep up the good work, man. All right, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Brian Sanchez and, of course, a guy that you know has bounced around a couple different organizations. And certainly at this stage of his career, you know, he's looking for another shot and hopefully he gets it this year. And it'd be great to really see him get a chance to pitch in spring training, particularly down in Florida where I'll be, you know, over by, you know, for the Mets and in the Jupiter, Port St. Lucie area. But uh, once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We'll take another break, segue into some bases empty block stuff. A lot of stuff going on in the second hour in regards to a lot of stuff going on with Major League Baseball. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Be back after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a family. Through one of the toughest years in my life, my ACS family stood beside me. My teachers were loving and supportive, and my friends shined God's love in different ways to make each day brighter. Atlanta Christian has a nurturing academic environment and is a second home to me. I am thankful for the school and family with which God has blessed me. Join us for Open House every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. 
When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. MTR. Radio. Taste is empty, blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Taste is empty, blog. Faces empty blog. Faces empty blog. Faces empty blog. Faces empty blog. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed what you heard so far. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get into Faces Empty Blog. And of course, for those of you who don't know, I write pretty much every day. Um, in, in addition to being a baseball historian, a guy who loves the game, loves talking to the players, loves talking about baseball, I also love its history. And I also love to talk a little bit about some conventional things going on in Major League Baseball. And over the last week, I've hit on a lot of conventional things. And I really started out with something that I, I found very interesting. The Atlanta Braves making a trade for Ryan Domit, who is a catcher, of course, for the Minnesota Twins. But over the last couple of years, it kind of switched over and become more of an outfielder, first baseman, DH type of guy. And, you know, I, I didn't really sense he was going to do a whole lot more catching, but the trade by the Braves with the Twins kind of gave you an impression that maybe Ryan Domit was brought over here to potentially be the Atlanta Braves starting catcher. I mean, let's be honest. Freddie Freeman's playing first base. You know about their outfield with Justin Upton, B.J. Upton, and Jason Hayward. And I know B.J. is coming off of a terrible season. I don't think he should be guaranteed a starting spot in spite of how much money he's getting paid. But, you know, you look at the Braves, and maybe it's a depth thing. Maybe Doman's going to be a top guy off the bench. But what stands out is the fact that free agent catcher Brian McCann ends up leaving to the Yankees, which didn't surprise many people. But Evan Gaddis was a guy who stood out last year did a very good job as a hitter. Struggled in the outfield, but it, obviously his natural position is catcher. And you thought with the Brian McCann signing with the New York Yankees that it would be a situation where the Braves would be considering going into the direction of Evan Gaddis being the everyday catcher. Ryan Dolman comes in, and I think you've got to look at Dolman more of a catcher than he is an outfielder or a first baseman or a DH at this standpoint. Obviously, DH you roll out. First base you roll out. Unless Domit's going to play right field and you're going to go with Jason Hayward in, in center and Justin Upton in left field, then there's probably not a starting place for Ryan Domit. And one thing the Braves have done very well over the last couple of years and really since the, the dynasty, and I call it a dynasty because they won all those division titles in a row. It's something that's never, ever going to be duplicated again. But you know, with, one thing they had was a lot of seri- a very good series of role players that could play different positions and help the team out. You look at Reed Johnson over the last couple of years and what he's done with the Braves. And you know, Ryan Domit could play that role, but he could also be the starting catcher. And I wonder what kind of implications that has with what's going on with Evan Gaddis. Maybe the Braves had a little bit of a doubt over whether Gaddis is going to be the starting catcher or not. And, you know, to have Gerald Laird there. And Gerald Laird, to me, is probably as valuable, if not more valuable, than either Gaddis or Dolman. Because Laird is that typical defensive catcher. Pitchers like pitching to him. 
And if you have either one of them, Gaddis or Doman as your starting catcher, you're going to want to have Laird there as a backup. I mean, it helps that he's signed through this year, but you know that's not important because the other two guys are signed as well. You're coming into camp with three catchers, and odds are you're going to probably go with two of them on a primary basis, and one of them is either going to be off the team or maybe play in different type, different type of position. So that that's weird to look at. I think um, the Braves. I don't see a scenario where it's Gaddis starting and Domit backing up or vice versa. I think it's going to be a mix and match type of thing, and you're going to see Domit play the outfield, who he's probably at this stage of his career a better outfielder than Gaddis. Remember, Gaddis kind of went out there and played the outfield for the first time, and he obviously saw in the results defensively. But I think I think Gaddis does have some promise as a receiver. And I think I, if I had a choice, I would go with Evan Gaddis as my starting catcher. Hopefully his offensive production will stay at the level where it was last year. And I think that's going to be something very good for the Atlanta Braves. But Domit definitely gives them more options. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Domit maybe playing some right field. But, you know, if they went in the other direction and decided that maybe Gaddis wasn't a guy who could be assured of the catcher job, and they went with Ryan Domit, let's remember that the last couple of years in Minnesota, he hasn't been a catcher. You know, Joe Maurer's been playing there. Drew Butera, who is a terrible hitter, but is a decent receiver, has been getting a lot of time over there. And, of course, the Twins have moved on. But Domit was not doing a lot of catching over the last couple of years. How quick can a guy, even though he's been a catcher throughout his entire career, how quick can he jump back out there and kind of get it to where he was when he was a catcher all the time. I think it's going to be interesting to see. And if he could do that, he's going to make things a little bit difficult for Evan Gaddis. But, you know, in regards to Gaddis, where he was last year in left field, I can't imagine the Braves just throwing him out there and say, hey, here's 140 games, go out there and play left field. He might hit 35, 40 home runs. That's quite possible. I wouldn't be surprised to see it. But... At the same time, I just don't see Gaddis lasting as, a, as an outfielder out there. He's a guy that, let's be honest, Lucas Duda was a better outfielder than, than Evan Gaddis. Daniel Murphy in the outfield might have been a better defensive outfielder than Evan Gaddis. And, and it's nothing against Evan Gaddis. He's a guy that just hasn't played enough outfield to be able to judge fly balls and, and get himself to a point where he can be an asset as opposed to a liability in the field. So I would go with Gaddis as the catcher if I was Atlanta. With Gerald Laird as a backup, use Domit maybe in a you know in a situation where you want to uh, let's say pinch hit somebody. Let's say Laird starting and you want to pinch hit you know Evan Gaddis for somebody else. You could use Domit you know later on to catch. I understand having the three catchers, two got two of the guys that can hit, being an asset for the team. But I think in, in the end this is going to be a very good move for the Atlanta Braves. But I also don't think that Domit was brought here to be a catcher. I think he's going to play a little bit of catcher at times, but for the most part it's going to be Gaddis and. Laird as the Braves end up moving forward. But, you know, speaking of moving forward, we're going to move on and we're going to talk a little bit about an award that I created. And it was just something that I kind of got into last year and I hinted that I wanted to talk about it because all the time in Major League Baseball, we talk about, you know, guys that kind of push the buttons of the fan or the analyst or the people following Major League Baseball. And essentially, they're boneheads. You know, you think of a Jordani Valdespin. You think of some other guys that kind of stood out this year. Yasiel Puig, uh, even Jose Fernandez at some points. You know, guys that kind of say, hey, that guy's kind of a bonehead. He's pushing the buttons of, you know, the game a little bit too much. And the guy that I center it all around is a guy that, listen, I'm not going to say I openly dislike this guy, but he stands for something that I have stressed a lot. And that is just the guy that's going to go out there and 
start a fight for no reason or just go out of there and be too much of a, I'm not going to say thug, but a, you know, a guy that's not out there to play baseball, that's trying more to cause a problem than to play the game. And that guy, of course, is Niger Morgan. And Niger Morgan, of course, you know, he came up with the Pirates. He was traded to the Nationals. Had a couple instances and incidents with the Nationals in regards to barreling over a catcher for no reason. You know, getting his face involved in a rivalry between the Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals. Making those stupid, stupid comments. And, you know, he was the guy that I kind of looked to when I'm trying to put together what I made this award. And I'm calling it the Niger Morgan Award. And I'm going to do this every year. And we're going to talk about you know, what happens during the season to be able to qualify for the Niger Morgan Award. And, and you, you got to be a jerk. You got you to go out there and you got to do something that is so foolish that you're just blatantly being wrong with it in regards to trying to upstart the other team and starting a conflict or a controversy that doesn't need to be started. And, and then, like I said, there were some guys that I thought about were pretty, pretty interesting to mention here. Uh, you know, a guy like Chris Johnson of the Braves, who, you know, I remember the incident where, you know, he kind of just backed his way into the Jose Fernandez whole thing. And, uh, you know, you think of other guys, Carlos Gomez. You know, Carlos Gomez is a player that I've liked, but his whole actions in that game with the Atlanta Braves were unacceptable. And, you know, you think of guys like Chris Carpenter and Brandon Phillips, who got into that scruff, you know, Vavo Yadier Molina a couple of years ago in St. Louis. But the one thing I want to say that is not going to make a necessary bonehead guy, in my opinion, is just being involved in a bench-clearing brawl. Because that happens. You know, there's players that get hit, emotions arise. And listen, a bench-clearing brawl, in my opinion, it does not make somebody a bonehead. But if somebody, for no reason at all, starts a fight that's unprovoked, that to me is a bonehead type of play. And that's what I think of Niger Morgan, and that's why we're calling it the Niger Morgan Award. So I counted down to five of the five moments, the biggest bonehead moments, in my opinion, this year, and the biggest boneheads in Major League Baseball. So number five, and remember, five, four, three, and two are not the winner. Number one is the winner of this award. So, you know, I start out with Carlos Quinton, outfielder for the San Diego Padres. And remember what happened with him is, uh, you know, I, I probably would have ranked him a little bit higher, except that, you know, one of the things that, you know, his incident, what he was involved in happened earlier in the season, and that was, of course, when he was hit by Zach Greinke and totally unprovoked, just charges the mound. And afterwards he says, well, I, I've been thrown at by Zach Greinke before. And that couldn't have been any further from the truth. Zach Greinke did hit him on two other occasions, but Carlos Quinton, let's be honest, stands in front of home plate more than any other player in Major League Baseball. Every year, year in and year out, this is a guy that's leading the league and hit by pitches. And that's because he stands right up on the plate. A pitcher has to throw inside every now and then to keep him honest. So the fact that maybe he was just tired of getting hit, you know, he ends up being a bonehead for going after Zach Greinke and in turn breaking his collarbone in the fight. Number four, and I've been on this all the time and just follow me on Twitter, you know about the hold umpires accountable hashtag I've been sending around, Tom Hallian. And Tom Hallian's been a guy that I thought for the most part is a decent umpire. I wouldn't rank him up at the top. I wouldn't rank him at the bottom in regards to his performance, but he has a hot head. And here's a guy that's going to go out there and start confrontations with players, sometimes unprovoked. And David Price was involved in a situation with him and during the game where maybe there was a little bit of a squeezing going on with the strike zone, maybe not. That's not for me to dispute. That obviously isn't for David Price to dispute. But the, you know, the fact that he didn't get a couple pitches, it wasn't like David Price was out there yelling or uh, instigating the umpire at all. 
Tom Hallion saw that he was a little bit unhappy with the strike zone or the calls. But David Price didn't do anything to kind of make it seem like he was showing up the umpire. So what does Tom Hallion do? He goes and he shows up the player. He goes out there and says, throw the fucking ball over the plate. And obviously that enrages the Tampa Bay Rays bench. And he has to throw somebody out. He probably thought he'd be wrong if he threw Price out because Price didn't say anything back. So he throws out Jeremy Hellickson, who, you know, you hear after the game didn't really do anything wrong. But he ends up inciting the Rays bench totally unprovoked. That, to me, is a bonehead move. The Rays bench would not have reacted the way it did if Hallian hadn't made that ridiculous statement. You know, fans come out to see players play baseball, not see Tom Hallian. Speaking of umpires, I'll move on to number three because we talk about Tom Hallian being a good to decent umpire. The next guy on my list is just a horrible umpire. He's a horrible umpire. He's horrible at the way he handles situations. And that, of course, is Angel Hernandez. And, uh, you know, of course... Hold umpires accountable, hashtag, you know, keep it going. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get it trending anytime soon, but I hope someday I can. But, you know, in regards to, let's say, an Angel Hernandez or even a C.B. Buckner, C.B. Buckner is just bad at his job. And you see very few instances where C.B. Buckner, you know, acts in an inappropriate way. You know, he accepts probably the fact that there's others that do the job better than him. Angel Hernandez doesn't do that. He had the opportunity when crew chief Jerry Davis, I believe, got sick or had to miss a game or something, that he became the crew chief of a Cleveland Indians game against the Oakland Athletics in Oakland. Now, a ball was hit to, by, by infielder Adam Rosales that was ruled to double on the field when there's an uncertainty over whether it made it over the home run line. The umpires went back to watch the video replay of it, and Angel Hernandez, the crew chief, is in charge of the whole review. So he's watching it. In the end, it's going to be his call based on the other umpires. And if there's sufficient evidence, the play needs to be reversed. And in this case, it wasn't. It wasn't even a disputable play. It looked like the ball clearly went over the line. And, you know, a guy makes instant replay look bad when he can't make the right call on the field. So he becomes my number three bonehead. My number two bonehead was a guy that I actually like. And I actually don't think that he intentionally did anything to get on this list. But I also think he overreacted a couple times, and one time too many. And that, of course, is Brian McCann, who is now the catcher for the New York Yankees, and the last several years has played for the Atlanta Braves. Like I said, dude, I, don't, I think McCann defends his teammate. He's a great leader. He's a great teammate. But his involvement, in my opinion, in the Jose Fernandez situation made what happened later on in the season involving himself in a Carlos Gomez situation seem worse. Because I think, honestly, in the Gomez situation, Carlos Gomez was completely out of line. And had McCann not nosed himself into the Jose Fernandez situation, then it probably doesn't look as bad as it does. But you have the Fernandez incident where maybe the Braves were a little bit bothered by some of his antics after getting a strikeout. And then Fernandez, for the first time and probably only time in his major league career, connects for a long home run to left field. Obviously, he's a little incensed in it, and he kind of stands there and admires it a little bit. And obviously, Chris Johnson, the fool that he is, you know, ends up saying a couple things to him as he goes around the bases. And finally, Brian McCann, after he crosses the plate, has a couple words with Fernandez. But the Carlos Gomez situation that ends up happening afterwards makes McCann look bad because that's the second time he has to jump in front of a situation like this. Obviously, Carlos Gomez had an issue with Paul Mahalm coming in. 
you know, he, he came up, he stared him down, he took the biggest swing of his life, and he had a home run and actually made a jackass of himself when he stood there for about 10 minutes to watch it and started drawing to Freddie Freeman and drawing to all the other infielders. He's coming around the bases, and finally Brian McCann stays in, stays in front of home plate and says, you're not worthy of the plate. I thought that was a good job, but the fact that McCann was involved in both of those situations with Fernandez and then Gomez, I, I say you got to name him the number two bonehead in the 2000. 13 season. And the number one bonehead of the season's got to be Luis Cruz. Let's be honest. I mean, I, I thought that the fact that something like this happened so early in the World Baseball Classic during spring training, that I thought over the course of the season, we will find somebody to be a bigger bonehead than Luis Cruz. Uh, let's be honest, there isn't. I mean, there's a guy that was on Team Mexico in a World Baseball Classic, played with the Dodgers and the Yankees in 2013. But Luis Cruz, not only just being a bonehead in regards to inciting the whole fight between Team Mexico and Team Canada, I mean, he obviously goes out there, points to the pitcher, says throw at the next guy. But the fact that he doesn't know the rules and doesn't know that runs in this classic is going to determine who makes it to the next round is this completely asinine this guy looked like a fool this guy ends up you know pretty pretty much inciting his own teammates to involve themselves in an altercation that they didn't need to be involved in and neither did team canada shane robinson goes out there lays down a bunt to get himself on base while the team's up yeah they you know that looks bad on any stretch of the imagination but with the rules set up the way they were, where total runs scored was going to determine who goes on in a tie situation, means Luis Cruz needs to know what the hell is going on. And I blame the manager. I blame the coaching staff of the Mexico team for not letting Luis Cruz know what the hell is going on. If this guy is foolish enough to go out there and just not know the rules and say, hey, this guy's randomly laying down a bunt, let's start a big fight. Uh, listen, that is the bonehead award guy. And I've said before, it's going to be the Niger Morgan Award coming on. So on the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network, I want to crown Luis Cruz the winner of the first annual Niger Morgan Award for 2013. We're going to go through the rest of the next season, and we're going to have you know annual awards every year. It's going to be always called the Niger Morgan Award, but the winner of the inaugural and first annual Niger Morgan Award is Luis Cruz, who, by the way, is playing, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, for the Chiba Latte Marines of the Japanese Baseball League for 2014. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Uh, great first hour. A lot more stuff going on. Hour number two. Back after this. Rock over London. Rock on Chicago. American Airlines. We mean business in Chicago. 